Have we started? No, let's start. Have you already started? Okay, let's start. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons we wanted to do that practice was to um, explore the realm of mindful talking and listening. Because it is, as some of you no doubt discovered, it's not so easy, even in a very supportive environment, in a very contained situ- communication that it's still easy to check out or leave ourselves or to you know, get preoccupied with what the person's thinking about me, how did I do, do I, you know, and all the social anxieties that might come up. And, um, and so we want to find a way to learn how to bridge this, this very, it can seem like a very uh, solitary inward practice uh, and the point isn't to train you to be just good cushion-sitting meditators, but to learn how to be fully awake human beings in the fullness of your life, including your work and your, your uh, therapeutic practices, your relationships, and with yourself and with, with your community. So I want to explore a few things this evening, um, mostly to talk about the fusion of uh, mindfulness practice and the practice of loving kindness and compassion how the, how the heart how the heart and the awareness practices uh, work together and support each other and also support us in our work so um, we've had many questions in different forms about uh, how does this practice relate to my work? How do I take this into my work with patients, with clients, with students, with whatever form you're working in? So I want to just briefly name a few qualities that I think really um, translate. Um, Because the qualities that we're developing here like the quality of a mindful, non-judgmental presence. Right, is very essential to any work that we do with somebody. And when we're working in relationship, just as you saw in the diet, there's a lot of things going on. Right? We're, we're tracking our own body, our own process, our own feelings in response, our thoughts, our emotions. We're tracking our client, our patient, our student, their thoughts, their feeling, their affect, their mood, their... Uh, Nonverbal cues. The, uh, we're tracking the intersubjective field between us. We're tracking projection, transference, countertransference. We're also aware of their history uh, and the context of the work that we've been doing with them. So there's a lot to hold. There's a lot to get easily lost in. And so the more that we can stay settled back in our in ourselves, in our body, in the felt sense of what's happening. You know, when I'm I'm sitting with students and with clients, the body is my refuge. I stay very grounded, very settled in myself. The more relaxed I am, the more receptive I am. The more attuned to my body I am, the more I'm catching and sensing what's happening often with the client, they may, not, they, they may not even be aware of themselves, particularly emotionally. So as you go about your days here, um, 
allow the, pra- the practice of allowing, of letting be, of not having an agenda with yourself in your experience, not controlling, all these qualities, all these, all these attitudes of mind and heart really translate very beautifully. The, the practice of beginner's mind. What is it like, what would it be like to, uh, each time your client walks in the door, to see them for the first time? Not denying, not neglecting the history and, and, and all the things that you know about them, and to meet them fresh. Because you never know who's going to show up through the door. I, I had a client came in the, a few weeks ago, a student, and she'd had some profound transformation, really profound transformation. But it wasn't obvious on the surface. And so I saw her and was happy to see her now, hello. And, um, and there was just a sort of, I could see the, the expectation of this is how I know her to be, this is so-and-so. And, and then she shared this, this, this process that was unfolding for her. And I realized, she, she, and she said, I feel like a completely different person. And so to hold that, that attitude of not knowing is a very beautiful quality that supports a much fresher and deeper and actually more honoring perception of the relationship. And this practice isn't easy as you've been seeing, as, you have, as we've been hearing, you know, to stay present to the breath or difficult sensations or difficult emotions. You know, it sounds very simple. Breathe in, breathe out, pay attention, what's the problem? And we see the mind doing its tricks and spacing out and running around and we're everywhere but this moment. So we need a lot of patience, a lot of self-forgiveness, a lot of kindness with ourselves. And to trust in the process. You know, I've had some people ask me today about the, the integration. And my main response is to trust in your practice, to trust that the deeper that you understand mindfulness through your own experience, that is what translates. That is what you, you, you take the practice in your being. You know, we can sort of integrate these different traditions conceptually, but that's not really what makes a difference. It's how we live this practice. That's how we know this practice, by our own lived experience. So um, I wanted to share this, uh, this little um, meditation ad that somebody sent me some time ago. And it says, um, there's a picture of a woman meditating, levitating, with the headphones on. And it says, um, ultra meditation. In 28 minutes, you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. The push-button meditation, the five-level ultra-meditation system for transcendence, peak experience, and discovering your place in the universe. In just 28 minutes. So you probably had several thousand minutes by now. (laughs) And I wonder how many of you are feeling like a Zen monk. (laughs) So we have these, you know, we have to deal with these cultural assumptions about meditation and how easy it is or how accessible it is. And in one way it's easy, one way it's accessible, and one way it's, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work, just like anything. So um, 
Larry introduced the awareness of emotions today. And I think uh, doing any kind of clinical work, any kind of therapeutic work with people, one of the places we need to have most fluency and understanding, particularly in our own emotional landscape. I was talking to a client recently who um, had just come back from working with somebody else, and uh, she commented that this therapist was not so comfortable about her crying. In fact, would ask her not to cry when she cried, and would talk over her when she cried. (laughs) And I thought, that's interesting. (laughs) I I wasn't surprised she came back. (laughs) So, and it's not the first time I've heard those kind of stories where people are just not so comfortable with an intensity of emotion. And that might sound shocking to to many of you. I'm looking at your faces looking aghast. But it speaks to uh, the need for all of us to do our work. And to the extent that we haven't done our work and digested and assimilated and our own material, it will have some impact on certain relationships where those, that material comes up in the, in the client. There's a cartoon that I like uh, there's a, there's a businessman sitting at his desk, and uh, he's a big desk, leaning over, and he has his finger on the intercom, and uh, a little caption underneath says, Miss Jenkins, he's talking to a secretary, Miss Jenkins, please get me in touch with my, se- with my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this room is, I think, an unusually proficient uh, uh, crowd in terms of having some uh, awareness and uh, experience working with emotions. And I'm sure you, many of you have seen that you still encounter uh, difficult places in yourself, places that are not so easy to work with, places where you're, you have some reactivity. So one teaching that the Buddha gave that I think is very helpful uh, or illuminating in in working with emotions, but it could be with other things too, is he gave this teaching on the two darts. And he said that in the course of everyday life, we encounter the first dart of suffering, just the normal um, experience of being in a body, having physical pain, having emotional sadness or loss or distress or uh, aging, sickness. And then we add a second dart, and this is the dart of suffering. The first dart is the dart of pain which is, uh, and it could be many things we add, is perhaps say if, we're, if we're feeling grief or loss, we might add the dart, oh, I thought you'd got through this already. You, know, you should be more involved than this. You know, I can't believe you're still dealing with this. You know, or some, some way that we judge or criticize or reject or push away, and we add to what is already a difficult situation. So one of the things you may notice, may have noticed today as you're paying attention to the realm of emotions is how easily we want to deal with them through our mind and our thoughts. How many of you have found yourself thinking about your feelings, judging your feelings, analyzing your feelings, thinking them away, 
um, being afraid of them, planning how you can fix and eradicate them, right? all the different ways that we might uh, try to think our way out of feeling, or ways that we might simply just, mm, I'm not going to feel that. I'm just going to let that go and think about something really juicy. Um, or we bypass. We do the spiritual bypass, and we it's like, well, oh, I don't want to feel all that rage and that real discomfort, this, that uncomfortable anger that I'm feeling, so I'm just going to smile and be happy and follow my breath and pretend it's not happening. Right? That's called bypassing. Or we move to something pleasant. The habitual knee-jerk reaction, something's unpleasant, we move to something pleasurable, often something sensual. And the Buddha said, while experiencing painful feelings, he seeks delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed person does not know of any other escape from painful feeling than sensual pleasure. So you may have noticed yourself wandering down to the dining room. I wonder what's available. You make a cup of tea. Maybe I can grab some snacks somewhere. I'm sure in one of those closets they have some food stashes somewhere. Or just honey, just spoonfuls of honey. I've done that on retreat. <laughs> we take whatever we can get, right? <laughs> I was on one retreat. This is a long story I often tell. I'll, I'll shorten it, but I was in my early years of practice. I was in Wales, and um, I was having a really difficult retreat. It was a winter. It was cold. It was miserable. I had no idea what I was doing in the meditation. And um, my friend was sick in the, in the bedroom, and I thought, great, I'll go. There was a village about three miles down the road, and I thought, I'll just hike down there, get some cold medicine, and stock up on chocolate. <laughs> so I got my rain gear on, hiked all the way down. It was getting dark. It was about 5 o'clock. Just got there before it closed. Loaded up on chocolate. Completely forgot about my friend and his illness. <laughs> Walked all the way back. It was a six-mile round trip. Walked into the bedroom. There he is. Oh, my God. Uh, would you like some chocolate? <laughs> I hear it's really good for, you know. So, you know, we, get, we, we don't want to be with something difficult. We get tunnel vision, we, we escape, and then there's consequences. He took it in very good humor. He drew me this very cute picture of me at, this, at the candy store with pockets bulging full of chocolate, and the person behind the counter is loaded with all this cold medicine, and I'm going, mmm, and another piece of chocolate, please. So another thing we, we, we do often is we look beyond the, 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 the pain. We, we look beyond it, hoping it will pass, right? We, we just kind of grit, we grin and bear it, and we sort of want to just be done with it. So we don't actually feel it. We're not with it. We're not open to it. We're just hanging, hanging in there till it's done, right? And Rilke has this to say about that, which I think is very instructive. He says, talking about his nights of anguish, how dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, you inconsolable sisters, and surrendering lose myself in your loosened hair? How we squander our nights of our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they have an end, though they are really seasons of us, our winter enduring foliage. So sometimes these waves of distress and sadness and anguish, they feel like winter. They feel like we're descending into the dark realms, the dark night. And as that beautiful metaphor, they are winter-enduring foliage. It's sometimes we need to go into those darkened rooms, those darkened places, to 
allow some time to process, allow some time to gestate, to transform, to understand, to liberate. So, and hopefully also, as you've seen with the practice, with this quality of mindful presence that has some patience or allowing or acceptance or openness or attunement or interest, we, it allows us to settle into a uh, feeling life. It allows us to have a softer, open attention so we can feel it. As we've been pointing to the last couple of days, we also see that we're not that we're more than the emotion, that the awareness allows a capacity to hold, that the emotions, however difficult and painful, come and go. So that that sense of disidentification, we see that who we are is not bound by the emotions that blow through us. I just had a session the other day with a client who um, had just been learning to do very simple breath meditation, suffering from quite quite intense anxiety and panic. And even just doing the, this meditation for maybe 10 minutes a few times a week, the level of anxiety had gone down to, to a, you know, really uh, uh, to a degree where it was quite workable, where before it was leading to panic attacks. And just for two or three weeks of doing simple breath meditation, learning how to be with her body for those 10 minutes, was enough to bring some capacity. So to not underestimate the power of this practice, sometimes it feels like, you know, I'm just with my breath and my wandering mind and what's this gonna do with, what's this gonna do with anything and how's it gonna relate to my life? And it really does translate. The other thing I've noticed as I've become more, you know, more uh, fluent with my uh, emotions, particularly difficult emotions, is I see how it uh, creates more openness uh, in my relationships. So and a good example of that was I was on a retreat some years ago with a dear friend of mine who um, I sort of mm, fondly refer to as my suffering Buddha friend. Uh, she just has a very, diff- has a very difficult uh, life and a lot of pain. And um, there was a part of me that I, I, was, I noticed that I was a little pulled back from her, even though we had a very sweet friendship, because I wasn't able to, her pain was too triggering of my own pain that had been undigested. And I, so we sat this three-month course together, and I went through my own dark night of hell, or dark three months of hell, and came to some, some peace with some of those really deeper woundings. And at the end of the retreat, we were spending some time together, and I noticed there was a complete lack of resistance with her, that, that that had completely dropped because I'd become so comfortable with dropping into my own difficulty. And of course, that's very true with the work we do with clients. You know, as you know, some clients we may find quite challenging because why? Because they trigger our own material, things that we haven't quite resolved yet. So um, the most important piece um, in terms of working with uh, difficulty and pain and suffering, whether it's emotional or physical or any other kind, is to, um, is to first acknowledge the suffering nature of it. To recognize, oh, this is suffering. This is painful. You know, we come to meet the, the, the Buddha's first noble truth, that there is suffering in this life. I'm not doing it wrong. 
and it's not a mistake, it's not a problem, there is suffering. And when we acknowledge the suffering nature of something, which might sound a little like, well, that's kind of duh, obviously, no, I'm grieving, it's suffering. But, when, but sometimes we don't notice, oh, this is suffering. When we, when we actually acknowledge that to ourselves, it allows the heart to meet it more openly and tenderly. Oh, this is suffering. Oh, yeah. Pain is like this. And it just allows the heart to come forward a little more because we're actually meeting the reality of it. So, and as we, as we learn how to uh, meet our own difficulty, our own suffering, our own pain, of course, what you may know already is that that tenderizes the heart and it allows the heart, it's, it's like a cultivation of the heart. When we meet our pain with some presence, it's a way of allowing the heart to develop. So I wanted to share um, a poem about that, several poems actually, but this is part of a poem from uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, a poem that we like to read a lot, which so speaks to this quality that develops, the, the quality of kindness that arises out of meeting pain. She says, before you know that what kindness really is, you must lose things, Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you may know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So, the other thing that arises out of turning towards, and I'm going to speak more to that, that piece of, of what arises out of turning towards our suffering, is we first begin to develop the seeds of empathy. The more that we learn how to attune to our own experience, of course, that is the ground for uh, that quality of care and kindness and compassion coming towards another. This is from Dan Goleman, who's written a lot on the subject. He writes, The act of compassion begins with full attention, just as rapport does. You have to really see the person. If you see the person, then naturally empathy arises. If you tune into the other person, you feel with them. If empathy arises, and if that person is in dire need, then empathic concern can come. You want to help them, And then that begins a compassionate act. So I'd say that compassion begins with attention. So, and I hope you've seen that in your time here, that as you cultivated attention, it cultivates a certain 
capacity for attunement to yourself and, of course, naturally to another. And, of course, that quality of um, empathic attention, that quality of unconditional regard is very central to therapeutic work. So I even came across something from our dear president about uh, the practice of empathy. So I thought I would read it. It seems appropriate. You know there's a lot of talk in this country about the federal deficit, but I think we should talk more about about the empathy deficit, the ability to get ourselves in someone else's shoes, to see the world through the eyes of those who who are different from us, the child who's hungry, the steel worker who's been laid off, the family who lost the entire life they built together when the storm came to town. When you think like this, when you choose to broaden your ambit of concern and empathize with the plight of others, whether they are close friends or distant strangers, it becomes harder not to act, harder not to help. So, and mindfulness really is the development of this quality of attunement, this quality of empathy. I was teaching um, this winter a couple times at a sister center in uh, in the East Coast at IMS, Insight Meditation Society. And um, I was working with uh, a student there um, who was a gardener, even though she wasn't gardening because it was February in Massachusetts. But, um, and she noticed that, she, that in her heart there was a lot of hardness and uh, tightness and kind of density and it felt to her like, like a nut, like a hard nut, like a walnut or a hard seed. And so I just asked her to hang out with it, just to be with it, feel it, sense it, touch it, hold it, just like we've been doing here. And over time, uh, the, the hardness began to soften. And what was a hard nut turned into a seed, and the, the, the tears of empathy and kindness were like, were like watering the seed, and so it began to sprout. This, this hard, tight density became soft and open, and the, the image that she was left with was this beautiful young sapling that was growing out of this hardened attitude she'd had to herself, and hadn't, she hadn't come to depreciate the importance of turning uh, that quality of attention towards herself with that quality of empathic entombment. So, so I want to say more about the practices of, of metta and compassion and how they also arise and support in conjunction with the practice of mindfulness. So metta, uh, which I translated as friendliness, or we usually use the translation loving-kindness, is both a quality of heart, it's a practice, it's an intention, and it's also something very ordinary. It's simply the heart that wishes well, the heart that looks at oneself or life or another and wishes, wishes life to be happy, to be well, to be free of suffering. It's a very easeful, ordinary, human sense of warmth and care and connection. And it's something that we're all familiar with in our experience. 
And what uh, I've appreciated in this practice is that uh, these qualities can be developed, can be cultivated. I grew up as a, as a Catholic in England, and um, I always heard the teaching about loving your neighbors as yourself, and I didn't particularly like my neighbors or myself, and I was a little lost about what to do with that teaching. And it sounded like a nice idea, and I really appreciated the, the hearing the teachings of loving kindness, because like, oh, here's a way to practice, here's a way to cultivate, here's a way to transform an attitude of hatred or antagonism or resistance or meanness or judgment into one of appreciation and warmth and care. And it really, uh, and I've seen through my own journey uh, with this practice, um, and I started uh, 20, some 25 years ago uh, in London. I was a punk rocker, it's hard to imagine, I had a white mohawk, and I was a very angry young student um, and I was an anarchist and was squatting and had a big chip on my shoulder. And um, Anyhow, that's another world, but <laughs> I got lost in that image there for a moment. <laughs> and, um, and I also had a lot of harsh judgment and, and uh, self-criticism. And uh, my heart was really frozen. I started doing this practice, and I felt like there was... I, even though I didn't really quite know what it was about, I, I felt some resonance. So I started doing it every day, <clears throat> and uh, mostly to myself, because that was where I felt like it, I was, it was needed. And, um, and over the years, it really softened what felt like an iceberg in the heart, really melted, and, and over the, as the years went by, a deepening capacity to care for myself and love myself and cherish myself, not in a narcissistic way, but in a really genuine, warm uh, appreciative way. So I want to read a story that speaks, um, stories often speak so uh, succinctly to these qualities. So this is a story from a doctor um, about the quality of matter, you could say. So I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy and clownish. A tiny twig of her facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She will be thus from now on. A surgeon I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. A young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me in private. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth who gaze and touch each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. And mindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. So there's such a beautiful demonstration, just how simple and attuned and loving 
this quality can be. So one thing that's useful to pay attention to is to see how, uh, how similar in some ways the quality of mindful presence and a moment of love, the quality of heartfulness really is. So in mindfulness, in a moment of pure mindfulness, there's presence, there's attention, there's receptivity, there's openness, there's interest, there's curiosity, there's a sense of allowing, of letting be, um, attunement, appreciation. Right? And if you think about a moment, of, a moment of love, how similar are those qualities? In a moment of love, there's warmth, there's definitely interest, there's connection, there's appreciation, there's attunement, there's receptivity, there's allowing, there's openness. Joanna Macy, uh, in an interview once, wrote, the Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic. Not something that Buddhism is often known for. (laughs) Buddhism teaches us to pay attention, and if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever it is. Anything. You put your attention on it, and it reveals itself to you. So maybe you've noticed that as you slow down, and you find yourself looking affectionately at a teacup, or the drape of the sheet on the bed, or the way the the wind blows the grasses and they sway in in the breeze. And you find yourself feeling not just present, but incredibly tender and and warm and affectionate. The poet Mary Oliver puts it this way. She said, There is nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. If there is, I haven't found it yet. So, um, so as you know, there's many moments here, especially with, with nature being so present. Um, we can see how naturally our heart can fall open, fall in love. I was walking down the road uh, up a little uh, path, and um, there were the grasses were sort of draped over, over the path, and there was a tick perfectly poised right in the middle of the path on the blade of grass waiting for me to walk, brush past to grab on <laughs> so he could have some lunch. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> we all need to eat. And I felt incredibly tender towards this little tick. <laughs> I can't say I'm usually that fond of ticks, but I just thought, you know, we're all, you know, we're all in this together. We all need to survive. And he's doing a great job of finding the right place to hang out for his next lunch. So I kindly removed him and put him in the grass somewhere else. And, you know, in, in, in the summertime, we have some swallows who come and nest up above the bathrooms. You may have noticed the little nests um, above the, mayor, the, the, the toilets out there. And it's so beautiful to have, though, their presence, you know, and the, when the babies grow and you see these little feathery, trembly darlings, you know, and you just can't help but fall in love and you can't help but feel caring and you want them to survive, you want them to live, you want them to be strong, you want them to be happy. You know, it's, just, it's just what the heart does. The heart roots for life. It's its nature. You know, and yes, we get traumatized and we have woundings and we have hurts and disappointments and, and the heart closes and gets overwhelmed with the suffering in the world. And yet, still, that's the movement of the heart. 
So I noticed in my, uh, in my practice, um, when I graduated about 10 years ago, um, I, I went to a pretty straight psychodynamic uh, program, um, clinical psychology. And so I took on this um, very, you know, sort of saddleback, neutral therapeutic stance, um, some idea that I'd created in my head about what, you know, a good therapist looked like, which was very neutral and very back. <laughs> Like really back, <laughs> very empty, <laughs> very zen, um, and I noticed that it was that wasn't so fruitful. <laughs> I'd have people sort of complain, like I I don't feel you. Like where are you? Like I'm not quite getting. Like <laughs> so, how is that for you when you can't feel me? <laughs> so. Um, and that was partly coming out of just, just finding my feet and also not being so confident. Um, but it was also a way that somehow I'd left my heart out of the room, out of the conversation. And as I've sort of grown comfortable in that, in that relationship and, and also feel more comfortable being myself and trusting in what I know, then I allow more of myself to be in the room. And, of course, what the, and I allow my heart to be in the room. And what I've noticed over the years is that there's really a lot of love and a lot of deep care for my clients. Like, you know, and I've worked with many people for many, many years. And, um, and I really allow and appreciate the love that arises and is present in the room and that really deep connection. Um, and so, so the, it's, it's like it's the, 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 the work, as I'm sure many of you appreciate, is a beautiful form in a way for those of you who work with people one-on-one it's a very privileged, uh, it's a privileged period, but it's also a privileged place where you get to practice what you were doing this afternoon. You, know, you practice mindful listening and speaking. You practice cultivating presence and kindness and empathy and compassion, right? wisdom and clarity. What a beautiful support for your own well-being and, and, and for theirs. So sometimes I use the phrases of, of metta, um, either before a client comes or after they've gone, or just to t- attune, especially if there's any, if I have my own reactivity happening for whatever reason or resistance. And I just, you know, the, the meta practice is a replacing practice. We drop a phrase and we say some phrases, it replaces the existing mind state with a new one. Two mind states can't exist in the same mind at the same time. So if we're feeling reactive and we say, and may I be happy, and may I be peaceful, may you be happy. Not to, it's not a denial practice, but it's a way that we can see how at times we can transform a mind state on a dime. And not to underestimate the, the practice. It can seem sometimes the mind can feel be doubtful. Oh, you know, how can how can saying these simple phrases, may you be well, may I be happy, may you be peaceful, you know, how how does that work? You know, it works because it's a it's a practice of intention. Each time we say a phrase, we're 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 saying a very powerful intention to ourselves, which is often replacing what our usual loops, story loops that are going around, like. Oh, I'm such a klutz. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be able to do this practice. I'm a hopeless therapist. And my relationship sucks. 
and I can't get my finances together, and yada, 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 yada. And then we replace all that negative, often very untrue statement with, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you love yourself as you are. Creates very positive neural pathways and transforms over time those negative beliefs and stories. So metta is also an attitude. It's the way that we meet ourselves and each other. It's a way that we meet the moment. It's a way that we meet experience. It's an attitude of openness, of warmth, of kindness. So how is it you can pay attention to the quality? That's why we say, notice your relationship to what's happening. Notice the attitude you bring when to, to a physical sensation that's painful. What, what attitude do you bring when your heart is feeling forlorn and sorrowful or lost in, in sadness and, and fear? So, so noticing that the attitude, the orientation really has, a, has an important uh, impact on that experience. And how the attitude that we bring to ourselves or the world often determines that experience and how we see it, how we experience it. Right? With our thoughts, we create the world, the Buddha said. And as I've found in my own experience, as the Buddha said, you know, the, the, the practice of metta begins at home. It starts at home. We start with our own relationship to ourselves because that's the seed of however we relate in the world. And he said something very interesting. He said, I've searched the whole world and I found none dearer, none more worthy of loving kindness than my own self. That we are the most worthy of our own loving-kindness. And for many of us, for whatever reason, uh, cultural conditioning, religious conditioning, sometimes we have some discomfort with turning that attitude towards ourselves. It feels self-indulgent or narcissistic or too self-cherishing, but it's actually a very healthy practice to um, begin to uh, sow the seeds of kindness towards ourselves. Oscar Wilde put it this way. He said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. So perhaps much more reliable than some of the other love affairs you might have. (laughs) And also, I think just one last piece to this is um, the, uh, the meta practice is a really powerful antidote to the critic, both in that it supplants the negative stories, the negative tape loops that we have about ourselves. Sometimes I suggest to people, uh, at the end of every judgment, you just add a meta statement. Oh, I'm so pathetic, and may I be happy. (laughs) Oh, you're such a loser, and may I be peaceful. Oh, for God's sake, just get on with it, and may I be happy. And it just, when it neutralizes the, the prior statement, and it just throws in, adds a little you know, warming wish for ourselves. 
the other thing that, that's, that the meta practice it does in support of working with the critic is it it just builds up this this storehouse or this mm, uh, I can't think of the word this refuge of well-being that it um, it just it's just a very powerful antidote to that negative diatribe that we put up with so much. <clears throat> I like to read this. Um, since you probably notice, anybody notice the critic on retreat? So often it morphs into a meditation critic or a Buddhist critic. Oh, I'm not so mindful, bad practice. Oh, you're so uncompassionate, you know. So this is something you might recognize. This is called A Checklist of Feeling Pathetic from Rhymes with Orange Cartoons. So the first cartoon, it says, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. How many of you have done that here with each other? (laughs) Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. It's a popular retreat pastime. So is this one. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. There's a picture of a woman getting compliments. Oh, you look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me. (laughs) And lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. So it's good to have a sense of humor. If you haven't noticed already, it's good to, you know, we have wacky minds, you know, and we do things that really are quite wacky and don't serve us. And we can get down, you know, with all this awareness, it's very easy for that information to be, therefore become more, more fodder for the critic and for us to feel judgmental, despairing, hopeless. And to have a sense of humor just lightens the load. As Wavy Gravy says, if it's, if you, this is crazy. If you can't laugh, it's just, it just, if you don't laugh, it just ain't funny. Something like that. I think I botched that one anyhow. <laughs> Sorry, Wavy. <laughs> What's that? Without a sense of humor, it just ain't funny. So lastly, I'd like to say some words about um, the quality of compassion. So the quality of meta loving kindness and compassion are really uh, two facets of the same jewel in our own hearts. So the way it's understood is that the, 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 base, the basis of the heart is kindness. And when that kindness meets, feels, encounters suffering of any sort, there's a natural response of that open heart, and the response is one of a tenderness, a caring, an empathy, a, uh, a feeling, compassion, we feeling the, su- feeling the suffering of the other as if it was our own. There's a feeling of wishing to relieve the suffering, a very natural response. So an example would be you come into the meditation hall and you hear somebody crying and it just naturally pulls on the heartstrings. Oh, I hope they're okay. I hope that, you know, I hope their heart is at ease. You know. There's just a natural uh, warmth, and I know some people felt that today in the dyads. You know, just you're sitting in front of another human being, and you're feeling their tenderness, their vulnerability that you share, and you can't help but wanting to wish them to be free of suffering, 
connection to even though it's impossible because we live in this world and suffering exists you still the heart wishes um, and there's also happens you know in our work you know I mean the, the people that we see in our practice you know it's heartbreaking stories sometimes session after session is heartbreaking um, I was just with a, a client the other day and uh, she was having some revelation about her past and her um, growing up with an alcoholic father and the the insight was was oh what the why it was so painful was because I didn't matter you know that the, the net effect of his drinking for her growing up was oh I didn't matter he preferred to hang out with drunks than hang out with me and it was incredibly tender painful moment very insightful very very beautiful, actually, and very liberating for her, but also just the feeling, the suffering of that young one. So compassion is this feeling of concern, this feeling of, it's a movement in the heart. So when I was teaching um, this, this meta retreat back on the East Coast, it was during the, just when the, um, the earthquake in Haiti happened. And we were, you know, even though we were teaching the retreat, we were also glued <laughs> to the internet, to just seeing the heartbreaking tragedy of a country that's already been so uh, hard hit with so many different economically, socially, uh, just history of, of, of suffering, and then to be hit with this devastation and just feeling the heart, the, the, the almost bleeding. So it's a feeling of concern, feeling of empathy, feeling of care. There's a story uh, that speaks to how, again, this movement can also be very simple and very ordinary. This is a story about a contest to find the most caring child. I'm not quite sure why this contest was happening, but anyhow, <laughs> it created a good story. So um, the winner was a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. And upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old man's yard, climbed into his lap, and just sat there for a long time. And then later, when his mother asked him what he'd said to the neighbor, the little boy said, oh, nothing, I just helped him cry. So we know even from a young tender age what it, what it means to, to reach out and touch and comfort and, and heal. Sometimes we feel compassion as a tender sadness when we hear about on, on the, the global suffering in the world, when we hear about ecological devastation, when we hear about famine and earthquake, when we hear about just the immeasurable amount of suffering there is in this world, we feel a sense of sadness, particularly when we see the, the suffering that's being caused by greed and exploitation and hatred and racism and colonialism and all of that net effect of human blindness and it, it just leaves us with this incredible tender sadness, maybe also rage and, and indignancy too, but also this real just the, it's, it's, a, it's a knowing of and, and these, these qualities um, of love and compassion, they're suffused. And when the Buddha taught this teaching, uh, he gave this teaching on the, what's called the Brahma Viharas, which are these divine abodes, and they're suffused with the quality of equanimity. So that sadness is often comes with a sense of yes, I know that this is how human beings at this time treat each other with blindness and ignorance, and it's painful. And the truth is it still happens. And yes, I may want to do as much as I can 
to stop it, and this reality still is how it is. One of the beautiful qualities of this, this, this state of compassion is it allows a sense of commonality, just as someone was speaking to about feeling connected in the room. I'm wondering whether that was partly what was happening, was that we feel the commonality of our shared experience. And we see that our suffering is not so personal, not so, not so isolated. It helps us see, it actually allows us to feel more united in some way. So the, the quality of compassion is both a feeling, but it's also a verb in terms of it, it wants to move, it wants to act, it wants to relieve the suffering. It wants to find a way to heal. So this is from Mary Oliver, um, called In Praise of Craziness of a Certain Kind. On cold evenings, my, gran- my grandmother with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, would spread newspapers over the porch floor. So, she said, the garden ants would crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for for myself but being so struck by the lightning of years to be like her with what is left, just that loving. So, and again, this practice, this, this quality of compassion comes out of self-attunement, self-awareness, meeting our own experience with a tenderness, with a kindness. And we all have this capacity. When the heart is open, when it's not resistant, when it's not in fear, there's a movement, there's a as a wanting to heal, a wanting to take care, wanting to nourish. This is from the far side, from Gary Larson, speaking to this innate quality that the heart has to move in this way. So we're in hell. Uh, speaking of hell today, somebody spoke of hell earlier. So um, here we are in Gary Larson's hell. And Satan's coming out of the fiery, fiery den, and he's shouting, Mom, no, no, Mom, no. And uh, the caption underneath is, um, despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. (laughs) And so she's here with a little tray, you know, cookies and milk and the fresh recruits to hell and a little pinny with, you know, devil things on and a little tail and there she is. That's just the, the heart wants to move. When we don't run away from suffering, which we so often do, as Achan Chah says, is when we run away from suffering, we run towards it. When we turn towards it, which can feel counterintuitive, with an open presence, with an open heart, the, 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 the sadness, the pain that turns to tenderness, turns to warmth, turns to feeling of... Hmm, feeling the suffering with, we suffer with. And that, that quality gives us what? It gives us fearlessness. It gives us tremendous courage. Because as we learn to work with our own difficulties, our demons, 
our wounds, our pains, our reactions, our suffering, our toil, whatever it is, as we assimilate, digest, integrate, it creates a certain fearlessness. When we go to the depths of our own dark night of the soul, when we really look at the places that are most scary, then at some point nothing else can scare us because we've been to the we've been to the depths. And those of you know who've traversed the dark night of the soul know what I mean. You've 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 gone to the the edge of despair, the edge of annihilation, and you've held that with a tenderness, with a with a with a with a, with a kind awareness. Sometimes the meditation path will take you there. And what comes out of that is tremendous strength, tremendous courage. And that is such a beautiful gift that we give to the people we work with. That when we do our work in the deepest way possible, we both not only show that it's possible, but we also, we also we, we transmit that, that the capacity, that we transmit confidence to those who are going through similar places. So I want to close with a poem that speaks to this from a poet, Roshani. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which comes the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So let's sit for a moment. as you sit with yourself, noticing the quality, the attitude in which you turn to yourself, hold yourself, be with whatever's arising, pleasant, unpleasant, beautiful, painful. Pay attention to this turning towards and the quality that's implicit within it. So thank you for your practice and your attention. So we will have um, walking now. Um, let's have the bell rang at uh, five after nine, and we'll have a short.